Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with San Francisco-based jazz pianist and radio host at KCSM 91.1, Dick Conti. He's a legend. He opened up about his latest 2018 CD, Blue and Green, a tribute to the great Bill Evans, and it's a great story. He talked about how he arrived in San Francisco in 1961 from his native Connecticut and has since become an integral part of the Bay Area jazz scene with his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz, formidable jazz radio presence, and his piano performances at clubs, festivals, and venues. Along with a defined prowess as a musician, he's a three-time nominee for Gavin Magazine's Jazz Broadcaster of the Year. He's got great Miles Davis stories and a wealth of jazz knowledge. It was a pleasure to catch up with him, so get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking a minute out. It's an honor to speak with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let me go ahead and start off here. As you mentioned, you have a new album out that's a tribute to Bill Evans. Talk to me about this project. Well, it just came out, uh, I guess, what, a few weeks ago now. I've had, this would be my fifth CD, actually, uh, starting around 1995. But this, to me, is my my best uh, project. And it's been 10 years since my last CD. And I feel like I've made a lot of headway in the last uh, number of years due to a regular weekly gig with my bass player who's on the CD, Steve Weber. Uh, up until last January, my drummer was Bill Moody, who's a, I don't know if you know about him, but he's a crime. He was a crime writer. He had a jazz piano player, detective, in a series of books, one of which was almost turned into a movie and still might happen, called uh, "Looking uh, Looking for Chet Baker." I don't know if you're familiar with that. That yeah. is one of his many books. In any case, he died last January, and we've been playing together for the last ten, twelve years. So uh, we were very saddened by that, but. Fortunately, Akita Tana, who you may or may not know, uh, here in the Bay Area, he's, uh, he's quite, he's one of the, you know, first called drummers, has many CDs of his own, played with all kinds of major people when he got started in Boston years ago, um, like Art Farmer and people like that, uh, Heath Brothers and so on. So he, uh, joined us for my annual Jazz Channel Scholarship gig at the uh, Jazz School in Berkeley. We do it every year, uh, close to my birthday, the, the closest Saturdays of my birthday. Bill obviously couldn't make it, so Akita said he would join us, and he did, and it was really nice. Before each set, we did a trio. It's a quartet, basically, with Steve Heckman on saxophone. So we did these two trio tunes in front of each set, and after the gig, he said, hey, man, that trio thing was really nice. Maybe we should try to record a trio date. And I said, that would be fine. So he called me and said, I'm going to be recording at the uh, famous Studio D Fantasy, at Fantasy in Berkeley on Monday with, uh, he didn't say with whom, but he said, I'll check and see if they have any available dates because the word is they're going to close down at the end of September after many, many years. So I said, okay. He checked into it. Turns out the only available date was on September 14th which is the day before they decided to shut down, not at the end of September, but on the 15th of September. And I said, do you realize that's the day that Bill Evans died uh, in 1980? And he didn't know that, but that is the case. The only date available, it turned out, was the 14th, the day before they closed down. We grabbed that date because that would have been our last opportunity. In fact, it had to start at 9 o'clock in the morning because the other two guys had other commitments in the afternoon that they had to get to. So we checked in at 8 a.m. to set, to set up and began recording at 9. 
they had to leave at one. So we did all the trio stuff in four hours. And then I oh. stayed an extra hour and did a bunch of solo tracks. And then we chose a couple of two or three of those for the uh, CD. But it was really interesting because it was the very piano that Bill Evans had picked out and recorded all of his albums on uh, the years that he was with Fantasy and related labels. So it was all very synchronistic. And I had been a friend of Bill's. I got to know him quite well in the middle of the 60s when he stayed nearby on the boardwalk that I was living on after uh, uh, coming out of the hospital, recovering from one of his many uh, disasters due to his habits that you're probably aware of. So it was all uh, very uh, interesting, and so we ended up doing a Bill Evans-oriented recording. I do uh, Blue and Green, which is the album title, All Blues, and a bunch of tunes associated with them, and then I did uh, three or four originals, one of which is called Song for Bill. So that's basically the story of how the uh, CD came about. And right now, it's getting incredible airplay on our local station. I happen to work there. KCSM, but that's, they're playing it because they like it, which is nice. It's getting played just about every day. So I've been sending it around to various stations in the country, and uh, it's being uh, distributed by our local cityhallrecords.com, and it's now available through them and on Amazon. And I'm very happy with the with you know how it all came out. It's the, it's the best thing that I've done, I'm sure, and I never really was that <laughs> happy about recordings in the past, except maybe one. You know, I feel like I finally have gotten down on tape what, you know, what I'm doing these days, and I feel good about it. So that's that's the story. Wow, that's a lot of inspiration, serendipity, and gusto that goes into that. I mean, you're talking about the, the lore of that studio, the legend of Bill and the piano. I mean, there's right. so much, you know, because you yeah. hear a lot of stories about about albums where, you know, it's kind of on the tertiary, but all of this that you're talking about is right there. There's just so much good yeah. that goes into that. That's beautiful. That's a great story. Um, yeah. So you, you happen to answer some other questions that I had about how you kind of view recordings and this, that, and the other. So I think it's probably uh, a, a good idea to go back to the beginnings of your life in Connecticut. Talk to me about your childhood and kind of how you got weaned into this world of jazz that's gotten into you being a performer and a radio host. Uh, yeah. When I was quite young, I had an uncle, Uncle Leo, God rest his soul, who was a huge jazz fan. And my parents would go visit them, him and his wife uh, and uncle. I was probably as young as maybe seven or eight. And he would start playing all these records for me, you know, big bands, uh, Dixieland, you know, early jazz, even Charlie Parker and stuff like that. Hmm. And uh, I, I was just, you know, somehow my ear picked up on that and it all just sounded really great. Plus they had a, they had an old uh, upright piano, uh, you know, the kind you pump, the old uh, one with rolls. Yeah. I don't know if you're even old enough to remember those, but yeah. they were quite prevalent in those days. Uh, and I would, they'd be in the other room, and I'd go in, it was in the sunroom, and I'd sit at that, I could barely reach the pedals. And I would keep putting these rolls in and pumping the piano, and the keys would go up and down, and the sound would be right in my face. And I thought, wow. This is really great. So I think that's what really attracted me to the idea of playing the piano. I just, I would make believe I was playing. And then in grade school, when around the, let's see, I guess around the sixth grade or seventh grade, or maybe even earlier, I don't remember exactly when, 
I guess I was nine years old. Uh, it was a Catholic uh, grade school, and the, the nun came into our classroom and said, we're going to be giving piano lessons uh, for a dollar a week, <laughs> half-hour piano lessons. And I thought, oh, great. So I went home and told my parents that I could get piano lessons from Sister Mercedes for a dollar a week, and they looked at me like, piano? What? <laughs> they thought it was pretty weird that I'd want to play the piano, you know, old Italian family with absolutely no musical, you know, vibes at all. So that's what got me started, and I did that until I got out of grade school. And then when I went into high school, I got a real piano teacher who was both a jazz and classical player. We we attempted the classical thing for about a year, and I I was obviously not that interested in that. And he would give me a song a week. Like I remember the very first song he gave to me was uh, uh, "I'm in the Mood for Love," and with the chord changes, and showed me how to do kind of a swing left hand based on the chord changes. And that's when I became interested in playing. We just dropped the whole classical idea. And then on, I would just spend hours and hours every day in the basement where I had my little my piano and my TV set and my record player and uh, listen to Harold Garner or Dave Brubeck or whatever and try to figure out what they were doing and bang on the piano for hours. And that was basically how I got started. So I didn't have a lot of formal training. I did that through high school. You know, I went in the Navy and then I moved to California and I picked up on a teacher here who gave me a couple dozen lessons, and that was the extent of my formal training. He was a very fine jazz pianist and a very Bill Evans-oriented kind of player. In fact, that he was working with uh, Lee Konitz uh, locally here when Lee was living out here. This was in the uh, 60s, in the early 60s, actually, around 62. So I just kept at it from then on, and Ended up uh, doing jazz radio. Uh, I had gone to a radio school in New York City before I moved out to uh, San Francisco. And when I got here, I realized it was a jazz station named K-Jazz. I called them up one evening listening to them, and the guy on the air, we were, had a conversation. I told him I was interested in so on. He said, well, you should come over and talk to the owner, Pat Henry. You know, he's always looking for young guys who know something about jazz, because at that time, you know, it was... We were one of the first FM stations in the Bay Area, the second one to go stereo in, in the 60s. So I went over and auditioned, and he said, can you start Sunday night? So that was it. I started doing a program here and a program there, and that was the beginning of a career, really, because uh, I've been doing it ever since on several different stations. And currently at KCFM, where I've been since 87, I was music director and program director for years, and then... I retired from the full-time five-day-a-week midday shift in uh, 2000, and since then, which is already 18 years, it's hard to believe, I've been doing Saturday afternoons 2 to 6, because I live up here in Sonoma County, which is uh, about an hour north of San Francisco, so from here to San Mateo is about an hour and 40 minutes, so once a week is, is quite enough, thank you, but I still enjoy doing it, and I love, <laughs> I love the work, and... Uh, you know, keeps me in touch with the, the world of jazz. It, the uh, CDs keep coming in the mail. Sometimes, much to my dismay, there's just so much jazz product these days that it makes one think, why do I need to put out another CD? You know, like with all the stuff that keeps arriving. Then, you know, after 10 years, I just felt like, okay, maybe this is my swan song, whatever. When a kid has suggested that we do this, I said, okay, we went for it, and 
I was kind of reluctant, but once the, once we got got through with it, he, he was very um, you know influential in, in the whole process, and I kept saying, "No, it's good, man. We'll, we should put it out." Because I was kind of reluctant, but no, no, there's some good stuff on there. I was at first when I heard the rough mix, I was not that excited about it. But then once we did the the mix and the uh, mastering, I realized that we had something good, and all of the reaction so far from everybody that that has heard it has been really, really nice. So it feels good, and I'm glad we did it. Let me ask you this. How does the world and and your brain work as a musician and as a radio host? I mean, do those complement each other? Are they two separate organisms that kind of fuse together? How does all that work for you? I think what you said last is, is probably the closest to it. When I program, I, I never make out a playlist. I know some people do that. What I usually do is I bring some stuff from home, and we have a huge library at KCSN. So I'll spend about a half hour pulling CDs, and then when I take over from the last guy, I've got a pile of maybe 50 or 60 CDs sitting there in stacks. And I'll start with one thing, and that leads to the next thing, and then the next thing. And I try to put sets together that make sense. I don't take 180-degree turns. You know, I try to make, like, we usually do sets of three to five tracks uh, in a row with a breaker in between somewhere along the way. And uh, I think my musician brain clicks in, and I look for things that make sense uh, as a segue, maybe what key they're in, uh, tempos, variety, big band, small group vocal here and there, and just kind of build a a show as I go along for the four hours and I'm there, and uh, it seems to work out pretty well, and I think by being a piano player, being a musician really, really does help. Without a doubt. Make something yeah. creative and uh, worth listening to. In fact, I did an interview yesterday uh, with Bay Area writer, uh, former Chronicle, uh, San Francisco Chronicle full-time guy, uh, Jesse Hamlin, I don't know if you know his name, but he's quite a good writer. You know, he was complimenting me. He said, you know, you're one of the two guys that I like best on KCSM because your sets make sense and you and you do the gamut, you know. You might play Coleman Hawkins uh, and maybe end up to set with Coltrane or something. And he said, I, I like your, your programming. So I might drop in a Louis Armstrong, you know, uh, and end up with Kurt Elling or whatever. So, uh, you know, I... And like I say, I don't plan ahead. I just basically put it together as I would do a gig. You know, like uh, my base, we never plan sets either when we play our gigs. We just basically go from tune to tune. And uh, that's kind of like the way I like to do a radio show. And I've been doing it for so many years, you know, and I've probably done over a thousand interviews over the years. Uh, most major people, uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie or whomever. And uh, so that adds to, I think, you know, my ability to program uh, in an interesting, creative fashion. So a quick segue here, when I when I hear that many interviews, and, and since I'm doing the same thing, my question to you is this. What do you get from the interview, uh, uh, these interviews that you have with these people? There's so many things that they bring from their world into yours. What do you? What have you gotten collectively from these interviews that you've, you've done over the years? Well, probably inspiration for one. I, you know, I can recall some, like, for example, the first time I interviewed Yusef Latif, who was during the kind of black nationalist uh, 
period in the 70s. And when he walked in the studio, you know, he had kind of a, a grim look and big tall guy. And oh, here's this little white boy that's going to interview me. That was the kind of attitude that I felt coming from him. And uh, once we got into it, he realized that I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was talking about. And I was respectful. And then he loosened up and began to smile. And we had a great time and a great interview. Next time he showed up, maybe a year or whatever later, to play Keystone Corner, he came in and gave me a big hug. Hey, Brother Conti, you know. So I thought, okay, I broke through, you know. <laughs> I had that experience with uh, with quite a few uh, players like that. And I always looked forward to, to uh, you know, to certain guys that I knew were going to be great, like Bill Jackson was always great fun and busy and you know people like that the ones who've been around the longest were usually the best the best interviews uh they had less uh you know less of a chip on their shoulder tony williams probably was the worst interview i ever had uh, as much as i loved his music and his his playing and all of that it was after he left miles and i don't know if you remember an album called ego by any chance yeah yep okay well that was the new album and he came to kjazz for the interview uh, for the new seat, uh, new record at that time, vinyl, and he was going to be performing locally. And he walked in with this attitude that was, and when he walked in, I could sense this attitude, almost as if he was trying to act out the name of the record. <laughs> it was really something. And the guy from the record company who was with him, he said, go down to the corner of the bakery and pick me up whatever it was he wanted. And I thought, wow, he treated him like this guy from the record company, right, a promotion man. Treated him like his servant. I thought, hmm, this is kind of weird. And that was before we even opened the mic. So I had, I was sitting in my chair, and he was on the left with his microphone. And next to me, I had a whole stack of albums that he was either on with Miles or his own records and all that. And he looked down, he saw them there. And the first thing he said to me was, you don't have to play those just because I'm here. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? I said, well, Tony, it's, you know, it's the usual thing to play the music of the guy you're interviewing. He said, okay, but I don't want to hear anything about Miles Davis. And here he was, shortly after having left Miles, they were having a big argument about stuff because Miles had stolen John McLaughlin from him. And that was why he was so pissed off at uh, Miles. So I thought to myself, it's going to be really hard to do an interview with Tony Williams without mentioning Miles Davis. I mean, this is crazy. So uh, after about two mic breaks and a couple of tunes, you know, during the music, he said to me, this isn't going too well, right, is it? And I said, no, it isn't really. Uh, so he said, why don't we just forget about it? And I said, okay. And he got up and walked out. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. this is the weirdest. So the phone started ringing and people were calling and saying, what's wrong with that guy? Who was that? What's wrong with him? What the hell? And I said, yeah, well, and I didn't make any comments about it. I just let it go as if it never happened. So that's the bottom of the pile, you know. I, I, I can't think of any other interview that was quite so horrible. But, you know, so you get a feeling. And it took me a while to warm up to playing his music, but then eventually I realized that, okay, that was one event. He's probably different now. And But, you know, several times I got a call in succeeding years from various promoters saying, would you like to interview Tony Williams? 
And my answer was always, no, I think I'll pass. <laughs> you know, and that, that never did go away. As much as I would enjoy listening to him and even checking him out live, I just didn't want to have to go through that again. You know, maybe it was different by that time, but that was just so horrible. And so, you know, that was it. It's funny. Yeah. I was I was talking to an author that wrote a book, Six Days of Ronnie Scott's Brian Gruber. He's out in Thailand now. And we were kind of talking about, uh, uh, he was writing about Billy Cobham and, and all of the years that he sold out there. And we kind of got on miles. And I've always been interested to talk to journalists about this. I personally have talked to a lot of people that have had a lot of direct experience with Miles, but I avoid bringing him up specifically because it's, it's always the elephant in the room, and by proxy, it's going to get brought up. And usually I let them open that door up. But the thing I've always find interesting about Miles Davis is that people are very guarded instantly about him. And this isn't a bad thing. It's just they're very metered. They're very careful about what and how they talk about not only him as a man, but the legend and lore. And I've never really heard anything specifically bad. Maybe these cats didn't want to hang with him, or he was just, you went and you recorded with him, and that was it. That was your relationship with someone like him. Uh, but everybody's always been careful, from Chuck Israels all the way into all Terry Gibbs, all kinds of people that have kind of swirled around in that arc, and I find it always interesting that he's the one person that will bring about that kind of carefulness in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was always a huge fan of his, and I still am. But I have two Miles Davis uh, stories that might be of interest to you. The first one, I was living in New York in 1959 and uh, working uh, for uh, Pan American as a reservations guy, and I used to go up to uh, 50, whatever, 90 seconds here, I guess it was, to uh, rent their pian- one of their piano studios for, a, a, I think it was a, a dollar for an hour or a half hour, whatever it was. And I was trying to, you know, get my act together. I was pretty young at the time and, you know, just kind of learning and doing a lot of listening. And Miles was, of course, one of my favorites. So one night I was, was uh, standing outside of Birdland by the transom, uh, maybe 50 feet to the right of the front door, and you could hear the music coming out. And it was the Miles Davis quintet, right? And I was really thrilled to be able to hear this. I didn't have enough money to go in inside, so I was just standing on the street. And here comes this cop, and he walks right past me. I'm just standing there. And right to the front of the uh, club, and here's Miles who just walked out of Birdland. He was standing in front of the door and lit up a cigarette. The cop goes right up to him and says, you can't loiter, move along. And Miles pointed to the sign, I'm playing here. And Miles Davis Quintet, right on the sign. He said, I don't care, just move along. The cop sort of touched him, you know, as if to move him along. And, and Miles, you know, pushed back. The guy took the club and hit him in the head. Wow. And he started bleeding. I don't know if this is a story that's been reported and written about in his biography and other. I've read about it in several different places. The very, and then, of course, a huge crowd gathered around. Cannonball and the band came out, and they kind of got around him. And somehow a limousine showed up. I don't know how that happened, but they ushered him to the limousine and got him to the hospital to, to uh, emergency. And the next morning on the New York Daily News, on the front page was a picture of Miles with blood all over his suit and his shirt. 
uh, and a big story. Now David is assaulted by the police or whatever the headline was. And I thought, how interesting and amazing that I got to see that. It was just wow. really upsetting and very weird. So yeah. many, many years later, here in the Bay Area, I'm working at KJAZ. This was 1969. He was performing at the uh, Fillmore Auditorium uh, with his band. I stopped at a, re- a restaurant venue in Sausalito called the, the Trident, which is rather famous. There were many recordings that came out of there. Denny's Island was working there every week, and uh, George Duke played there for a long time, and so on. So I went in to have lunch. I was going to head over to KJAS to do my program, which was going to start at 6 o'clock in the evening. I was doing a 6 to midnight shift, a shift at that time. I walked in, and this guy, Luke Gannapolar, who had previously managed the Village Vanguard, then he moved out to California and took over uh, booking and managing the Trident. I walked in, and you know he knew me from the radio station. He said, hey, Miles Davis is here having lunch. You want to meet him? I said, seriously? I said, I don't know, man, because I, <laughs> I knew about his reputation of being kind of salty, and, you know, here's this young DJ type who's going to probably be a pain in the ass. So I said, I don't know. So he went over and checked with Miles and came back and said, yeah, I told him you work for KJS. We'd love to talk to you. I said, oh, great. So I went over and sat down with him. We talked for a little bit, and he finished up lunch. He said, I got some new music I want you to hear. You want to hear it? And I said, sure. So we get into this Lamborghini and drive up. I don't know if you know Sausalito, but it's very hilly. There's a hilltop. And uh, we drove up the hill to Dr. Henderson's house, who was his father's buddy from uh, Illinois. He was staying there. The trumpeter, Eddie Henderson, you know him, right? Yeah. yeah. This is Eddie's father. And he, Miles was staying there during his time in San Francisco. And then he was going to be going down to L.A. to continue. So I spent about three hours at least with just him and I in this, uh, you know, in this house. And he kept bringing out all these cassette tapes and playing them for me. And they were all, you know, avant-garde stuff that had not come out yet. Remember Live Evil, that album? Uh-huh, yep. That kind of stuff with a sitar. It was the first time I heard sitar and tabla and all of that. This is stuff that had not come out yet. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So we were checking it out. And he kept leaving the room about every 20 minutes and coming back. I thought, oh, I wonder what's going on in that other room. This is during his uh, fabled cocaine period. So uh-huh. we um, got to do all of this. And he was kind of weird in a way. I mean, he, I, I was kind of nervous just being around him because he was so kind of fidgety and, uh, you know, it was really kind of hard to talk to. But he was interested in what I thought about all this. He said, I could see all those kids out there smoking their weed. They're going to love this shit. Something <laughs> like that. He, he was very aware of what he was up to and he was trying to get to that youth audience because this was after Bitches Brew. And so he had a whole new audience, right? And he was, in fact, performing in front of uh, the Grateful Dead while he was in San Francisco, which is kind of wild. He, he always liked to open and then get the hell out of there. That was his thing. <laughs> so um, he said, I said, well, I have to leave in a little while to get over to the station. He said, he asked me if I wanted to take some tapes with me to play on the air as long as I got them back to him that night after my shift. I said, that would be great. So I took several tapes with me, 
got permission from the station owner to, you know, air a couple of things, which I did, uh, two or three, you know, things while I was there till midnight. So when I got through at midnight, I drove back. I was living in Marin County, uh, not too far from Sausalito at that point. So I drove up the hill and they were in a bag. I put the bag of tapes on the doorstep. He told me to do that because it would be late. I put them there and then he would get them in the morning. I said, great. So I did that. I went home to Corte Madera and early in the morning at about like eight o'clock or wherever it was, the phone rings and it's miles where it was tapes. <laughs> if I don't get those tapes, you're going to be in deep shit, you know, and he just really kind of basically threatened me over the phone. And I couldn't blame him because, and I was shocked. I thought, what, what happened? I thought somebody stole them, right? So I jump in a car and I drive over there. And when I get there, I realize that I put them in the front of the house next door by mistake. They look similar. <laughs> and it was nighttime, it was dark, and I put it at the wrong door. Right? So I suddenly realized what I had done. So I ring the doorbell, and this lady comes out, and I, I said, did, did you happen to find a bag with some tapes? And she said, oh, yeah. And she reached in and pulled it back and said, I wondered what these were. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. Thank you so much. And then I went next door and rang that doorbell, and Mrs. Henderson came to the door. And I said, is Miles here? And she said, no. I said, thank goodness. <laughs> I gave her the tapes. I said, please make sure he gets these. And I left with my tail between my legs, thinking, oh, my God, I just really dodged a bullet, man. <laughs> Probably literally. Yeah. And, and that was that was my second and final Miles Davis story. I mean, that was just, you know, really hairy. <laughs> yeah, if you could imagine, what if she just was like, I'm getting rid of these and just destroyed them? I mean, that's it. It's, it's yeah, I mean, the woman just had no idea what they were. You know, they were fat. They were barely labeled or anything. I don't know if this, my name was even on them. They were just little cassette tapes that, you know, they had given him after sessions to check out to see if he, what he wanted to do with them. I recognized some of it when that my, uh, Live Evil came out, that, that some of the stuff that I had heard. But, you know, at that time, they were piecing stuff together like crazy. Yeah. And, uh, Without a doubt. You know. That's amazing. That's a great story. So those wow. are my two most famous stories. Which I pulled on the air at, at KCSM during Pledge Drive when we did Miles Davis specials, and people always like to hear the story. Tell that story again about Miles. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story, man. Beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, you've been around for so long. You're so prolific in what you've what you've experienced with a lot of these artists and what you've seen in jazz. What changes have you seen over the decades that you've watched jazz grow up into 2018? That's been promising. Promising. Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, that there are so many great young players coming up. Uh, and, it, you know, even though it's still with a minority music all the way around, there's no doubt about that. You know, the fusion thing uh, was interesting for a time. You know, I was very much into Matheny and Chick Corea and Return to Forever and all those bands when I was doing live, you know, doing K-Jazz. And we were pretty much you know, playing all of the stuff that was worth playing during that period. I was very excited about uh, Bitches Brew when it came out because it was so different. And we were airing all of that stuff. And station owner wasn't crazy about it, but he let us have our 
our way. You know, he would occasionally, re, you know, react negatively to some of the stuff we were playing. And nowadays you got this fusion of uh, hip-hop and all of that. I'm not crazy about it. Some of the guys are really talented. I'm not really too wild about, you know, the whole hip-hop thing. But some of the stuff that is being done, you know, is interesting enough. I don't lean too heavily on that in my own programming. And in case the FM is a lot more, I would say, mainstream-oriented, but we do, you know, we go off in all directions. It depends on who's on the air. And people have... Uh, freedom to do what they want you know most of the folks there have pretty good taste so i'll sit still for certain things but you know i might necessarily not you know program a lot of that i might throw in a thing here and there just to you know keep it interesting but uh and you know i'm glad that they allow us to pretty much be ourselves and program i was on a blue note cruise a couple years ago marcus miller was the music director and david sanborn was on it and so there was a lot of um, attention to, you know, the more recent kind of stuff that's going on. And I found a lot of it interesting. Some of it I found kind of boring. Uh, but that's where it's going. And, you know, like, if in order for the music to uh, to continue, you've got to accept some of these forms, you know, or else it's just going to die. You know, you can't rely on Clifford Brown and Art Blakey forever. You know, you've got to keep expanding. And recently, Roy Hargrove died, and I thought I think he was, you know, on the cutting edge in some ways. But he was also a great mainstream player, and uh, he was one of my least interview, interesting interviews, by the way. He he had very little to say. Actually, he started to nod off during the music part, part of the interview. I had to wake. I say, Roy, we're going to go back on the air, and he would jump up. You know, Roy had his problems too, and I guess that contributed to his recent departure. But, you know, sweet guy and great player, but not too loquacious, to say the least. Nonetheless, no. you, know, he was, he, you know, he was cool. He, I liked him, but, you know, like I say, it was not a great interview. The one thing I got from Cass to Kansas City was that they said that he was always on the scene. You know, he was one of those guys that would show up at any jam anywhere, no ego, and he just right. really wanted to, you know, really wanted to jam with people and, you know, kind of teach them a little bit. Um Joe Locke was in Kansas City on Saturday, and I saw him with Pat Bianchi, and he wrote a song for Roy and just explained how there was this light, there was this thing that emitted out of Roy. It was one of the better ways someone explained, you know, we have all these players that come through our, our world, and then you get some of these that just have that light, and he had it. So That interview that I was just talking about, we went, we did it at KCSM, and then we went over to the... Um, Hotel Fairmont. He was playing in the New Orleans room, and at the time he was with uh, with Verve. There was a video camera going on during the radio interview, and then we went over to uh, continue the interview. They were doing a promotional video, is what it was. So then we went to the city, San Francisco, and went to the hotel and continued the interview in the venue that he was going to be playing at that night. And there was a piano there. And because they wanted to get him in, in a different setting, so we continued the interview, and it was a little more upbeat there for some reason. In relation to what you're saying about him playing anywhere, anytime, at the end of the interview, I went over to the piano just to check it out, and I started playing it. He picked up his flugelhorn and joined me. <laughs> I don't remember what the tune was. It was a ballad, and I thought, wow. <laughs> and so we ended up playing for about ten minutes. I thought cool. this was really cool, and that changed my whole attitude. 
about Roy Hargrove. I mean, he was totally willing to, to play with me, with just the two of us. I didn't ask him. He just did it, you know, and I thought, yeah. this is something. And that goes along with what you just said about he'll play with anyone, anytime. Yeah. It made me feel good that he was willing to play with me. He wouldn't have probably if he thought I was terrible. So, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I must not be too bad. Yeah. Will play. <laughs> yeah, that was some, some years ago. That was when I was still there full-time, so that would have been before 2000, so it probably was like in the late 90s or something. You know, the one thing about our lives, one one part of our jazz education or live shows we see, tell me what live jazz show maybe early on in your life you saw that really left an impact on you. I can remember the very first jazz show. It was Vinny Goodman uh, with uh, Lionel Hampton and... Uh, I think, yeah, Teddy Wilson, you know, at that time, this was, I was only, God, I was, I was in grade school. And it was around the time that I was, you know, hearing jazz that my uncle, I was telling you about earlier. A neighbor, and then, and there were two, two boys that were like my age. We were probably, I don't know, seven or eight, maybe, something like that. And their father was a fan of the Benny Goodman band, and I guess a jazz fan in general. I had no idea who Benny Goodman was, but I guess, or maybe I'd heard his name. And they were <clears throat> they were performing at a concert in New Haven uh, at some auditorium. I don't remember which one it was. The kids came over and said, "We're going to go hear Benny Goodman. Do you, you know, do you want to come?" And I asked my parents, and they said, "Yeah, that's okay." So he took the three of us to hear them, and I was totally blown away, especially you know Gene Krupa. <laughs> You know, okay. did one of his major gem solos, and it was all very exciting. And I'd never heard a big band or any jazz live. That was my first live concert, and I think I got a hook that day. You know, just wow. the whole idea of what was going on on that bandstand just totally got to me. And and I think maybe that was the beginning. And uh, you know, after that, it was just uh, kind of a disease that never left. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. So, very generically, very simply, why do you love jazz? It appeals to my heart, my emotions, uh, my feelings, you know, the creativity of it, beauty of it. You know, I think it's a great gift to be able to sit down at a piano or any instrument, really, and express yourself. And over the years, I felt more and more competent at doing that. And lately, I've I've, you know, felt really fortunate to have been able to keep doing this both on the radio and uh, to play, you know, to play for people and get so much enjoyment out of it. I'm kind of, I think I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, make this my life's work. I mean, in the early years, I had to do a lot of things like bartend and drive school buses and uh, stuff like that to work part-time on radio and to keep practicing piano and absorbing the music any way I could. And then finally by around 1969 or so, I was able to work full-time in radio, and it's been pretty much straight ahead ever since. I never had to take any other kinds of jobs. It was always radio and music. So I think I'm pretty lucky to have it all do. Not too many people can say I love my work. Without a doubt. Everything's going to come down to this. Everyone has a perception of who you are, who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But you know yourself best. Tell me, who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? 
Well, that's a hard question to answer, but I, you know, I think I'm who I am. I mean, I, I think I express myself on this new CD. I just feel I'm, I've been able to express who I am uh, through my music and for whatever it's worth. And, uh, you know, I'm just happy with, with my life as it is. I don't wish I was somebody else. That's great. That, that's a great way to, I think, summarize everything, wrap everything up. Thank you for your contribution to jazz. Thank you for taking a minute out. It's an honor to speak with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in San Francisco, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Dick for his time, his cool, and all of that dedication to the jazz craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.